We are studying this afternoon verses 113 to 120 and verses 121 to 128 of Psalm 119. The first of these two stanzas is structured as a chiasm again. If you look at the center two verses, 116 and 117, you can see that those two verses are petitionary. Uphold me according to your word that I may live. Hold me up and I shall be safe. And those are the only petitions in the stanza. Then if you look at the uh, beginning and ending verse of the stanza, you'll see that in those two verses, the psalmist talks about himself. He says, first, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. And then in 120, my flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. And in the other four verses of the stanza, 114 and 115, as well as 118 and 119, he talks especially about his enemies. Or to put it a little bit more fully, he talks about God himself and his enemies. But his particular concern in those four verses is with his enemies. So if you look at the structure there in the, in the stanza, I think the main idea stands out pretty clearly in verses 116 and 117. Those two verses express the main idea of the stanza, and we can just summarize it using verse uh, 117. Hold me up, and I shall be safe, and I shall observe your statutes continually. So what we want to do as we're looking at this is start with those center two verses, 116 and 117. Then we'll look at the verses surrounding them, the four verses surrounding those two central verses, 114, 115, 118, and 119, about God himself and his enemies. And then we'll look at what he has to say about himself in verses 113 and 120. Now, it's this, in the stanza, the evildoers, his enemies, uh, do play a prominent role. He addresses them directly in 115. He talks about them again in verses 118 and 119. And their presence is certainly implied in verse 114. And his petitions in 116 and 117 are necessary because of those enemies. So they play a prominent role in the stanza. But when you look at this stanza and its feeling, I think what you see is that he's not, at this point, greatly distressed by the presence of these enemies. He's not complaining here particularly about the harm they are doing him. We've seen some of that in earlier stanzas. But here, the dominant note seems to be confidence in the Lord, in spite of the presence of these enemies. So let's look at the details of those two petitions. First, uphold me according to your word, and then verse 117, hold me up and I shall be safe. Though the English is very close there, the Hebrew is a little bit wider apart. There's still synonyms that we have here, but... There's a difference in meaning between those two words that I think it's worthwhile to point out. In verse 116, the word translated as uphold 
sometimes means to lean on. And it's the word, actually, that's used of um, the uh, placement of the priest's hands on the head of the scapegoat. In Leviticus 16, verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting, on the, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. So that's the same word that lay his hands on the head of the live goat that we have here. But that's one part of the meaning, or one half of the meaning of the verse, of the verb rather. It's found also in Psalm 37 in the sense of support. Uh, Psalm 37 verse 17 For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. That's the uh, idea there. And verse 24 as well, Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. So I think the idea of this word is that when we lean on the Lord, then he provides support for us. He's there like a wall, for example, that a man might lean against in order to support himself. He stands by our side and he is our support when we need something to lean on. And uh, this is a, a support that men cannot provide. You find the word also in 2 Kings 18, verse 21. 2 Kings 18, verse 21, where he says, uh, Now look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. So that's that word again. You're leaning on it for support, but it's a broken reed and it will pierce your hand instead of providing the support that you need. Men are not able to provide this kind of support. The other word then has the idea of sustaining. And it has uh, conveys the notion of sustaining life, for example. It's used in other contexts as well for maintaining a kingdom and the righteousness of a kingdom. But if you turn to Psalm 104, the word is used there in 104 verse 15. God gives wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread which strengthens or supports man's heart. He maintains his life. And so you get the idea first of providing support and then of maintaining life or sustaining life for us. Those are the the two ideas here in the petitions. Uphold me according to your word, he says, and then hold me up or sustain me. Support me and sustain me. And he adds to it then uh, one more petition in verse 116. Do not let me be ashamed of my hope. His hope is, of course, the things that he's talking about here in 116. He says, uphold me that I may live. He has hope in life, hope of life then. In 117, he says, hold me up 
and I shall be safe, or I shall be saved, would be more precise, I shall be saved. And in the last part of 117, I shall observe your statutes continually. These are the the things that he's seeking from the Lord that he hopes for. He hopes for life, he hopes for salvation, he hopes also that he will be able to observe the statutes of the Lord continually. And he prays to the Lord for sustaining, for support and sustaining, in order that he may achieve this hope. And he asks the Lord, don't let me be ashamed. Don't deny me the fulfillment of my hope. Because if you deny me the fulfillment of my hope, then, of course, I will be publicly disgraced before my enemies who will laugh at me because of the futility and stupidity of that hope. So fulfill my hope so that I may never be ashamed. So I think that's the the main idea of those petitions that we have here in the center of the stanza. So let's move out then to the verses surrounding those central petitions in 114 and 115, first of all. And what we see here is overall in these two verses and in verses 118 and 119, I think, is confidence in the Lord. Confidence that the Lord will uh, help him, will support him, will sustain him, will protect him from his enemies will make sure that his enemies cannot accomplish their purposes against him. He begins by saying, You are my hiding place and my shield. You are my hiding place. That word hiding there has the idea of secrecy even in it. You find the same idea in Psalm 27. You will hide me in the secret place of your tabernacle. This place is secret. It's unknown to his enemies. His enemies are not able to find it. They they look at him, they look at his confidence in the face of their oppression, and they say, where is he finding help? How is he able to stand against this? There's some secret to going on here that we don't grasp, that we don't understand. And what he's saying here is, You are my hiding place. They don't understand that, but you yourself, O Lord, are my hiding place. You hide me. Make me, uh, give me a private place where my enemies can't find me, don't know where to find me, and therefore cannot injure me. And you are as well my shield. That is, you stand between me and my enemies in order to protect me from their swords, and their spears, and their arrows. He's expressing then a full confidence that the Lord will protect him from his enemies. And because of this protection then that the Lord provides, he says, I hope in your word. He first talks about the present, you are my hiding place and my shield, and then he looks to the future and he says, I hope in your word. Because I have this present assurance, I have this confident hope, also in your word. That's a different word. That word hope in 114, by the way, is a different word from the one found in 116, but it's very close in idea as far as I can tell. 
But he's expressing the idea then, first of all, that he believes the word of God is true, that he expects that word of God to be fulfilled, and that he is waiting patiently for the fulfillment. I think those are the three ideas in that word hope. The word is true, I expect it to be fulfilled, I wait patiently for its fulfillment. And it's because then of this confidence that he has in the Lord that he directs his next statement in the stanza to the evildoers. This is one of very few verses in the psalm that are not addressed to God himself. Depart from me, you evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. Now, a couple of things about that. First of all, when he says, depart from me, you evildoers, he's giving them a command. He's not just expressing a wish. He's giving them a command. And he's giving them a command based on the character of God and the work that God is doing on his behalf and his confidence in the Lord. He's saying, you evildoers, you are uh, seeking to do something here which is completely vain and futile. My hiding place and my shield are the Lord, and I hope in the word. Why do you even stand around and, and attack me? There's no use in this. And he reveals to them also in this commandment, depart from me, God's will for them. It's not just saying this is what I say. This is what we, you should conclude from God's protection of me that if you do not depart from me, you will suffer consequences at the hand of my hiding place and my shield. Depart from me. And he adds to this, for I will keep the commandments of my God. And what he means is, again, to say, what you're trying to do is useless, is futile. You want to separate me from my God. You want to tempt me into sin. You want to bring me down to ruin. But let me tell you, I intend to keep the commandments of my God. I intend to continue to walk in his way, whatever you may do to me. Now, if you look, go down then to verses 118 and 119, he's talking uh, to God about God and his attitude and his dealings with his enemies. He deals with them directly himself in verse 115, but in 118 and 119, he talks about what God will do with them or is doing with them even. You reject all those who stray from your statutes. And again in 119, you put away all the wicked of the earth like dross. The theological word book of the Old Testament says of that word reject that it means to toss aside or to uh, uh, make light of. You make light of all those who stray from your statutes, or you toss aside all those who stray from your statutes. 
This is what the Lord does with the wicked. To the psalmist, he is a hiding place and a shield. To the wicked, he is one who simply tosses them aside as not worth his consideration or his help or any such thing because their deceit is falsehood. That is, they're practicing deceit and the psalmist knows how to understand and classify this deceit. This deceit belongs in the whole category of falsehood. There are many other kinds of falsehood perhaps, but they are practicing one particular kind and this belongs in that category which we may describe as falsehood and which God hates and which is contrary to his law. It is because of their deceit and their falsehood then that God will toss them aside. And verse 119 expresses a very similar idea. You put away all the wicked of the earth like dross. Dross is the byproduct, of course, of refining, refining silver and gold. It's all the impurities that come out of the pure, uh, out of the silver and gold in the refining process, and it's useless. It's the junk that you throw away when you're done with the refining process. This is what God does with the wicked. He puts them away like dross. But then notice that very striking statement at the end of verse 19, therefore, I love your testimonies. He looks at what God does to the wicked. He puts them away like dross and he says, because of that, I love your testimonies. Interesting conclusion to draw, isn't it? Because of the way you deal with the wicked, I love your testimonies. But if you think about your own response, for example, to the wickedness of our times, that wickedness of our times arouses our disgust. It stirs us up to pray to God for, to bring an end to that wickedness. And when we consider that wickedness, we cling even more fervently to the testimonies of the Lord, don't we? We see that there is a standard of righteousness. There is a way of life. There is revealed to us the righteousness of God, which is unchangeable in the face of all the changes and wickedness of men throughout the ages. And so this wickedness of the earth, of the men of the earth, stirs us up to an even greater love of the testimonies of the Lord. And then finally, let's look at verses 113 and 120, where the psalmist talks about himself. First, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. The double-minded are is just another name for the wicked, of course, And they're called double-minded because their minds are always changing. They have no anchor. They have no strong mooring to hold them in one place. They're subject always to the winds of change in the society, to every new philosophy that comes along, to every social movement that happens. They're always shaken to and fro. They're double-minded. They're Their minds are not stable. And the psalmist says, I hate them. 
He doesn't mean he will not do them good if the opportunity to do such good might arise. Jesus says, love your enemies, and the law says the same thing. But what he means is they will not be his friends. They will not be his companions. He understood as well as we should understand today that friendship with the world is enmity against God. And to contrast with this, he says, I love your law. I hate the double-minded, I love your law. These uh, two, love for the double-minded and love for the law, are incompatible things. And he finds that in his love for the law, he must hate the double-minded. And then finally, in verse 120, my flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Now this is about the fear of God, of course, which we've talked about many times before, about the necessity of uh, a godly fear, a godly awe, a godly reverence for God. But I want to point out to you that the word fear in the first line of this verse is a very strong word. It's a word that really could very readily be translated as terror or dread. My flesh trembles for terror of you, or my flesh trembles for dread of you. This is the word that we find one of the words that we find in Exodus 15, verses 15 and 16. Exodus 15 records for us the song of Moses and the children of Israel after God drowned Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. And they anticipate the consequences of the um, knowledge of this work of God among the people of Canaan in verses 14 15 and 16, the people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord. It's in that last verse, 100, uh, verse 16, where we have the word that's found in our text. Terror and dread will fall upon them. So this is something that the evildoers uh, should feel in the presence of God, but this is something that the people of God themselves feel in the presence of God, this terror of God. Think of Elijah on Mount Horeb when he heard this still small voice. He wrapped his face in his mantle. Or think of uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 21, which talks about Moses' reaction to the revelation of God's power and majesty and glory on Mount Sinai. He said, I exceedingly fear and quake. That's the dread and the terror the psalmist is talking about here. And that last example is I think a very good example for this passage because the psalmist goes on to say, I am afraid of your judgments. When God revealed himself on Mount Sinai, he was revealing himself through the law, of course, through his righteous judgments 
And he was showing to his people by the signs on that mountain, the thunder and the lightning and the earthquake and the clouds and the smoke and all the other things that revealed his power and made them afraid. He was saying to them, this is what the righteousness of my judgments is like. And you ought to be afraid of my judgments. You ought to tremble before me. This terror of God, this dread of God, means that when we stand in the presence of God, we should feel that the majesty and glory and righteousness of God could easily, very readily, be our complete undoing. That the very uh, foundations of our being are shaken by the revelation of this glorious God. We tremble for dread of Him. and We are afraid of His judgments. But, the difference for us is that we do not, like the wicked, flee from that. But we know instead that it's good for us to be there in the presence of God and to know that fear. And we love that God who is so great in majesty. You see that fear of God in our Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, urgently praying, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That was fear of the judgments of God, the righteous judgments of God. But he did not turn away. Father, he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, and not as I will, but as you will. And it's because he was steadfast in obedience, even in the face of this fear, and in spite of the oppression of his enemies, that we can confess with him the truth of this stanza. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. So let's turn then to verses 121 to 128. Now this stanza, again, is quite different from the one we've just been talking about. If you look at the first six verses of the stanza, I think you'll see that the thrust of those verses is petitionary. The stanza is primarily petitionary. It's not all petition in those first six verses, but there are, there's a whole series of petitions in it. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be a surety for your servant for good. Do not let the proud oppress me, and so on. So it's petitions in the first six verses primarily. And then in verses 127 and 128, the tone changes. Therefore, he says, I love your commandments more than gold. Yes, than fine gold. Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. I hate every false way. But what we want to notice, too, is the very important statement, the statement that closes the petitionary part of the stanza, verse 126. It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. And I think that, we can say, is the main idea of this stanza. 
It is time for you to act, for they have regarded your law as void. So what I want to do is just work our way straight down through the eight verses of this stanza, looking first at the petitions we find here and the associated material, then taking a little bit of extra time to look at that verse 126, it's time for you to act, and concluding with what he says in verses 127 and 128. Notice that the petitions then in verses 121 to 125 are very personal. He's concerned about himself. And all these petitions are for God to do something for him personally. And these petitions are not only concerned with having God do something for him, but have to do with his circumstances of oppression at the hands of his enemies. His enemies are present with him, and he's pleading with God to help him in those circumstances. So he begins in 121 with the petition, Do not leave me to my oppressors. Do not forsake me, do not abandon me, so that I have no one with me here while I am under the hand of my oppressors. Stand with me, be near me, to support me, to maintain me, to keep me through all of what they are doing. And he basically repeats this in the second part of verse 122, do not let the proud oppress me. These men are proud in the very act of oppressing him. That's how their pride manifests itself. And he says, don't let them oppress me. And between those two petitions, he says, be surety for your servant for good. Now the idea of that word surety is guarantee. Be guaranteed for your servant for good. It's similar, for example, to you perhaps co-signing on a loan. You become surety or guarantor of that loan so that if the person for whom you're co-signing defaults on the loan, you become responsible for its payment. And Solomon, of course, in Proverbs, advises against this kind of thing. He says, don't be surety for others. There's a lot of danger, a lot of risk associated with that. But the psalmist here is saying to God, you be my guarantor, you be my surety against my enemies. You be the one who guarantees my safety and who guarantees the good that you have promised me. Be surety for your servant for good. It's very close an idea, in fact, to the New Testament idea of the Spirit as an earnest, isn't it? God gives us the Spirit as a guarantee of the future inheritance. And here, the psalmist is praying to God, be surety for your servant for good, for all the good that you have promised to me. In the midst of this oppression, guarantee my safety. Then in verse 124, we have another uh, petition, actually two more. Deal with your servant according to your mercy and teach me your statutes. He needs the mercy of God. And that is always, whenever we plead for the mercy of God, we are acknowledging, of course, our own unworthiness. 
our own uh, inability as well to help ourselves. And we ask God to look on us with compassion and with love that we do not deserve and to deal with us according to that loving kindness, that goodness and beneficence which belong to his own being. Deal with us in that way. Not because we are good, but because you are good and compassionate and merciful. And again, notice how he asks, in the circumstances he's in, in the oppression of his enemies, teach me your statutes. How many times does he come back to that prayer in this psalm, people of God? Over and over and over again. In all kinds of different settings, in all kinds of different um, contexts in the psalm, he keeps on coming back to it. Teach me your statutes. I need to know your statutes. And the only way that I can know them is if you teach me. And he duplicates that petition in 125. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. So let's, those are the petitions then, very briefly, but let's look at also the um, other material that's associated with those petitions here. First in 121, I have done justice and righteousness. And here he's not claiming merit, of course. We don't find those kinds of claims in the scriptures that any man stands before God and claims merit unless he is wicked like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable. The righteous don't make those claims of merit. When he says, I have done justice and righteousness, what he's saying is, vindicate me against my enemies. It's not I who have acted wrongly in the present circumstances. I am identified with the cause of righteousness. I am identified with you, with your party, O God. And because I have done justice and righteousness, the oppression of my enemies is unrighteousness, wickedness. And he bases then his plea to God on the fact that he is identified, not they, with God's righteousness, that he is innocent, and that they are guilty. Then in verse 123, he talks about how he has been waiting for a long time for God to come. My eyes fail from seeking your salvation and your righteous word. That is, he has been watching for God's salvation and God's righteous word to the point that his eyes are growing weary and growing dim, that his sight is failing him. He can not hang on very much longer. He's waiting and waiting and waiting for God to help. Come, O Lord, and deal with your servant according to your mercy. And then in verse 125, note that statement with which he begins, I am your servant. I am your servant. Now that word servant actually appears three times in this stanza, so it's a very important word in this stanza. Verse 122, be surety for your servant for good. And verse 124, deal with your servant according to your mercy. And now again in 125, I am your servant. Psalmist talks about himself in two ways in this psalm. On the one hand, he talks about himself in the first person, I and me. Most often, in fact, he He's talking in those terms, I and me. But quite frequently, he talks about himself also in the third person. 
And when he talks about himself in the third person, he always, I think, throughout the psalm, identifies himself as the servant of the Lord. I don't think he uses any other name for himself when he talks about himself in the third person. It's always when he talks about himself in the third person in the psalm, your servant. And that's very appropriate, of course, in the context of the psalm. This is a psalm about the law of God and his need to obey that law of God, to live according to that law of God, to keep and to observe that law of God. And that need arises out of the fact that the Lord has redeemed him, has purchased him to be his servant, his slave. And in that purchase, in that covenant purchase, he has obligated him to obey his commandments. I am your servant. And therefore, and the psalmist does not object to that, of course, he's not sorry that he is the servant of the Lord, he's glad of it. And in identifying himself as the servant of the Lord, he says, I need from you everything that is necessary for me to live and act as your servant in the world. I am your servant, give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. So it's in the context of enemies, enemies oppressing him, that he makes all these petitions to God. And then he concludes his petitions, the series of petitions, by saying in 126, it's time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. Now think about that statement a minute. God has appointed in his eternal counsel all the times for his acts. He has uh, appointed all the works that he's ever going to do in the whole history of the world. And he's appointed all the times for all those works. And he's not revealed most of those works to us with a couple of major exceptions, like he's coming again. He's going to judge the world, that sort of thing. And even then, he doesn't tell us when. So we don't know what God is going to do, and we don't know when he's going to do it, but he knows. He knows the precise time for him to act. It's a very bold statement, then, for a man to say to him, it's time for you to act, O Lord. Time for you to act. We would say, wouldn't we? Who are we to tell the Lord it's time to act? He knows when it's time to act. I don't. It's for me to wait patiently for him to act, not to tell him that it is time to act. And yet the Lord, in his condescension to us, allows us to express to him this kind of thought. It is time for you to act. Even, you might say, to advise him with regard to these things. And it's in his great condescension that he says to us, Yes, you have told me it is time to act. I agree. And I will act on your behalf. He answers our petitions. So this is a great boldness on the part of the psalmist, but also 
great condescension on the part of God to us. That he will listen to such statements from us. It's time for you to act. Notice why also it's time for God to act. The psalmist doesn't say here, notice, it's time for you to act because I am near death or because I am so heavily oppressed by my enemies. He says, they have regarded your law as void. Here's why it's time for you to act. I look around me, I see the wicked around me acting in blatant and open wickedness. They uh, have regarded your law as void. They say it has no standing. They set it aside. It's not applicable to themselves. They go their own way. They make their own laws, which are specifically contrary to your law, O Lord. These wicked men are openly and blatantly rebelling against your law. And I love your law. Therefore, I say, it is time for you to act. Time for you to act against these wicked men. Again, I think we can understand very readily in our own times, why this would be such an urgent prayer on the part of the psalmist. We look around us and we see men regarding his law as void, even men claim to be Christians, regarding his law as void. And we say, it's time for you to act. And we pray earnestly for him to act, to uphold his law, and to bring wickedness to an end. Finally, verses 127 and 128. This is an expression of love for the law, again, also frequently found in this psalm. But I think the key here is that word therefore, with which both of the verses begin. Therefore, I love your commandments. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. He's drawing a conclusion from things he has said before. And it's not very clear, I think, to us when we think about it. What is the basis on which he is drawing that conclusion? Why is he saying, therefore, to what does he refer? I love your commandments. And I think that Calvin and Spurgeon both have it right here. He is referring to they have regarded your law as void. He looks at these wicked men. He says, they regard your law as void. That increases, feeds my love for your commandments. Therefore, because wicked men regard your law as void, I love your commandments. And again, I think you can understand this pretty readily if you think about it in our own context. You look at the wickedness that men are doing in our society and you hate that wickedness. You are disgusted by that wickedness. That wickedness is abominable in your eyes. And if it's abominable in your eyes, how much more abominable in God's eyes? And that wickedness of men makes you turn with ever-increasing fervency to the commandments of the Lord. There's the standard of right. There's the thing that we want. This is what establishes righteousness and justice and peace and all that is good for us. Not that wickedness of men, though they disguise it under all kinds of concern for this group and that group and every other group under the sun. We 
seek the commandments of God because we know that in those commandments is our only hope of righteousness. I love your commandments more than gold. Yes, than fine gold. And the same thing applies to the final verse. All your precepts I consider to be right. This fact of the wickedness of men makes me cling ever more firmly to the uprightness of the commandments of God and makes me hate ever more fervently every false way. Our Lord Jesus Christ basically said at the end of his earthly ministry, it is time for you to act. He said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. That's what he was saying. It's time for you to act. And God was acting in him and through him to undo that wickedness, to bring an end to it, to apply to that wickedness his righteous judgments. And it was in the face of that wickedness, that wickedness which adheres to us, and which adheres to the wicked as well, that Jesus said, I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. And that's why I will walk in obedience, even to death. Because by that, I can save those who are yours. And I can bring judgment on those who are not. May God bless his word for us.